Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. You often see articles about operations or posts on LinkedIn that talk about operations folks, and they talk about ops people as the unsung heroes in an organization. But I gotta tell you, I think that there's a group of unsung heroes within the unsung heroes. And those people are the members of the data team. For companies that are in hypergrowth, the sheer volume of data that's available and the number of requests coming in to access that data can be daunting. And from the outside looking in, it can seem pretty simple. The data exists. I want it. Go get it. But from the inside, from under the hood, it can be a lot more complicated, which is why I am super excited about our two guests today from Drift's own data team. Senior Data Engineer Arun Venkateshwaran and Senior Manager of Business Intelligence Kyle Thelman. Together, Arun and Kyle form this two-lane highway of Drift's data team. And in our conversation today, we're going to talk to them about how they've thoughtfully crafted their partnership. We're going to learn about the four V's of big data. And we're going to give you a real-life example of how they translated a tough business problem from something pretty technical to something so digestible that even I can understand it. And for bonus points, I'm going to learn how big a terabyte of data is. But to start, let's look at Arun and Kyle's roles on the team, data engineer and business intelligence. What exactly do those mean? And what exactly do they do? So when you say data engineer, you basically are looking at how a persona that does software engineering work but is not building features that are directly exposed out to your customer. You're kind of are the internal engineering team that's enabling other teams to be efficient in how they monitor their work. So how they push their data out to you and how you get that data into a central place where they can easily access their own data and monitor that, how their performance goes. Within the data engineering space, you need to not, not only know the product knowledge or know every other product's like ins and outs, you want to be able to know like how the other departments correlate to. So like how does the customer success measure their performance? How does marketing measure their performance? How does sales measure their performance? So because you end up being the central engineering department that caters to all these departments. And on top, like we uh, as a data engineer, you should also have a little bit of background in business intelligence and data science work. Since if you're interfacing with the BI and data science teams, you want to be able to speak their language and also understand how to get their requirements satisfied too. It is a mix of business and engineering disciplines to be a data engineer. It is definitely a valuable field in this current day and age. Yeah, and I mean, also I feel a pretty rare combination of of skill sets too. And so we can we can talk more about that, but Kyle would love to hear more from you on what your specific role means inside of the ops team at Drift and how you think about your role in terms of partnering with what Arun does. Arun said a lot of a lot of things that are similar to how I think about the BI and analytics role at Drift, both from like a a combination of an engineering and a business type of role. 
I'd say BI analytics leans a little bit more towards the business side. I mean, Arun could correct me if I'm wrong, but data engineering leans a little bit more on the engineering side. But ultimately, like there's this Venn diagram central part that Arun and I overlap within, which is, and Arun said this, like a centralized data warehouse that we both kind of play within. So my role is taking all the, the hard work and data processing that Arun and his team does to get data from the product, flow that into a, a data warehouse, and then making that data readily, readily accessible for our business teams like marketing and customer success, sales and product, so they can action off of that data. So it's a little bit more forward-leaning towards the business side, but nonetheless, I still need to be able to speak Arun's language from a SQL standpoint. Um, Arun can speak my language from a business intelligence tool standpoint. So there's quite a bit of overlap and Arun and I do end up working on things together and having some of that overlap, but just sort of the the end user goals are slightly different. Whereas my end users and my core customers being directly interacting with the business teams. I want to definitely come back to some of that end user stuff, because I think that that's going to be super super important for people to understand. But before we do that, I want to go back to kind of like the center of that Venn diagram that you mentioned, Kyle, because if I'm out there listening to this and I'm either on the data engineering side or I'm on the analytics and BI side, how do you guys think about the center of that Venn diagram and how you work best together? Because you guys have been working together for a little while now and you've kind of felt it out. But I would imagine as you're first getting started, you have to figure out exactly where that crossover point begins and ends in that Venn diagram. Is that fair? I would agree with that. I think the Venn diagram where the intersection happens is the data warehouse and our front-facing reporting tools. So yeah, I do look at the backend engineering, getting data to its place, to the data warehouse. But from there, like these are all raw data streams. There's no way to make sense of these raw data streams unless we build other tables or other like layers on top of this raw data that make sense of it. And this is where I would say like Kyle and I like work hand in hand to be able to, in our work with like dealing with org packs or conversation packs where we roll up each and every raw piece of information into our like by day, by customer or like by, by day, by conversation. And I, I'll let Kyle add more on like the specific informa- uh, specific details that we built out within these tables. So, Totally agree with what Arun just said. I, I think even like a practical example helps a little bit here. Like with Sean, I mentioned this to you earlier, but this two-lane highway concept of myself being working with other folks within the operations team, as Arun does too, but they're gathering requirements from the actual business teams on reporting data needs, insights that they're hoping to gather from data. They're bringing that to myself in, in a lot of cases and asking for me to surface that data, whether that be in our BI tool or whether it just be in a raw form. And I'm going back, like Arun said, in our central location, which for us is our data warehouse. And I'm seeing what's there. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to basically understand the data model to, to try to surface that data and satisfy that need. And a lot of times on a daily basis, either I don't know where that data exists or we don't have it yet, or I need it in a different format, a different structure. And that's when Arun and I and and Arun's team, that's when we really come together where it's, okay, we have a business need over here. We don't have it readily available right offhand. To satisfy that, we have to come together and make that data available in the right structure, in the right place, 
so that we can efficiently give it back to the business team so that they can start using those insights and, and making those business decisions with that data. Okay. Pay particular attention to the two-lane highway analogy that Kyle is outlining here, because this highway, this partnership between data engineering and data analytics is really the focal point of our entire conversation. When Kyle talks about getting the data into the hands of the end users, I'm one of those consumers of the data within Drift. I'm at the end of the highway. But for me and for all of us in ops, it's important to understand what is happening along that highway and to be able to understand the core components of how data and analytics teams think about their function. In my preparation for our conversation, I learned about something called the four V's of big data. And really those four V's are the core components. They're the building blocks for these teams. And luckily you don't have to listen to me try to explain it. Arun is here for that. So uh, I can start with the first V that is volume. When I started Drift around two years ago, I actually measured our total warehouse size. We're at one terabyte. So if you put all our conversations, all our Salesforce data, everything that happened at Drift for at that time, there'd have been one terabyte. Now, within these two years, I just checked like right before we started talking, we're at 29 terabytes in our uh, building. <laughs> in terms of hyper growth, we're talking like around 1400% year over year growth. Uh, in terms of our data that's exploding and how much how much each team is tracking, each team has their own SaaS tool. Like customer support has has their own like satisfaction tool that they use. Like oh, uh, how do we get that data? And so all these like, contribute to the volume, and that's how much explosive growth we had. Now then, uh, next is the variety. So again, as I said, each and every team has their own types of different data that they bring into the system. Salesforce is more transactional, and whereas our Drift chatbot is essentially a like a conversation text. Whatever happens on the Drift chat is essentially like a like a blob of text. Like we want to see, oh, like how many times has an end user said pricing or like talked about pricing in their chat or in their conversation? To be able to analyze all this. This indicates the variety of uh, type of data that we deal with from very highly structured within the Salesforce domain to like very loosely semi-structured data within what happens in the chatbot itself. The next one would be veracity. Do we also want to check, are we getting the right data in? Are we making sure we're double checking the data that comes in into the system? So we built a lot of checkpoints where like we ensure that, oh, if we're getting this piece of data, are we running a bunch of these checks to check if there's a null data load or if there are other like pieces of information that are outside of the average or median ways we look at? We do put in checks for that. And this enables trust within the data team. We can also go ahead and say, okay, this is what we believe at this point in time is the truth. And then uh, last one would be velocity. So I would say we are experiencing as I said, each and every chatbot that happens anywhere, each and every chat that happens anywhere in the world, we're getting that data warehouse into our backend at pretty much within two or three minute latency delay. And this enables us to like analyze or look at conversations almost in real time. Again, like as an engineer, you want to be able to know, hey, is the chatbot working properly? Or is there any issues or in terms of transactions, are we getting the right level of transactions coming in? So these are the four we's that we kind of embraced and have gone towards building this data warehouse and infrastructure that supports the warehouse. 
That's incredible. And Kyle, I want to dig into specifically veracity with you because, okay, if we're going from one to 29 terabytes of data, certainly a lot of drift conversations are, are contributing to that. But the variety that Arun is talking about too, I think makes veracity harder, right? And as we have increased our variety, one of the things that I can imagine, like if I extend the highway metaphor a little bit, is that where you and Arun meet or where we as anybody inside of the organization meet on the definitions of some of these things, like that to me is where this stuff can break so quickly because you could end up with 17 different versions of what is actually the same metric, but nobody really knows the true definitions of what's going on. So as you've come on to the team and then ultimately like had to learn it yourself and then also expand upon what was already there when you got here, how have you kept track of all of the different definitions so that you can feel as confident as Arun was saying about the veracity of the data that we're producing? Yeah, and that's a very real example of a, of a problem that you can face when you have the growth that Arun spoke to. And a lot of definitions for a lot of the different key metrics that we look at, they're all very close, but they're all very different at the same time or can be interpreted really differently. So, I mean, the unsexy thing that that helps cut through this is documentation. So since coming on board here with Drift, I've tried and implemented some data dictionaries, user guides, other forms of documentation that break down the different definitions that we have that our, that our business teams are using. So whether that be data that we're piping into Salesforce so that our, our sales and customer success teams can use and, and look up on the fly or within a, a Looker dashboard, if, if we're aggregating data, making sure that there's documentation, both from a, a business user standpoint, so that they know what a conversation really is, but then also from a technical standpoint too. So that if somebody like an Arun or down the line, if there's somebody else in the analytics or BI role that were to come in, they could actually see kind of the SQL behind it that actually powers that. So that we could both troubleshoot and also help clarify any sort of questions that we have, which we get all the time of what is this metric actually showing? What does average over the last week mean? Is it seven days? Is it six days? Is it a grouping by week? You can slice and dice it a million different ways. So having that documentation there and having that there and up to date is really critical to keeping all these things organized. So it's the documentation, it's a data catalog. It's all those things that isn't the, like I said, the sexiest thing to, to do. It's, it's really, really important to keeping your head straight. Okay, let's recap the four Vs. Volume, variety, velocity, and veracity. Before we go on though, quick side note, Arun talked about the size of Drift's data warehouse exploding from one terabyte to 29 terabytes. And data sizes this big are hard to imagine, right? But I did a little bit of research and here's some context. Every single book scanned into Google Books combined is about 40 terabytes of data. And the entire Library of Congress is 74 terabytes of data. So 29 terabytes, put simply, is a lot. Okay, anyways, back to our conversation. To keep up with this hypergrowth that Arun and Kyle are talking about and all that data, Veracity was the four V's component that really jumped out at me as the one that everyone on the team can play a role in maintaining. And maintaining that veracity can often mean the unsexy documentation and definition work that Kyle alluded to. 
Because here's what's inevitably going to happen. Someone's going to come to your data or analytics team with a new ask. And there are really just two options at that point. Option one, the data that they're looking for already exists and someone has done the work to pull it in the past. Or option two, it doesn't and it's a net new ask. But without good documentation, your team likely won't know the answer to that question and could spend a bunch of time duplicating work that someone else has already done. So I wanted to understand how Kyle reacts when this exact scenario comes up. What's his order of operations for looking at what is already available to him and deciding the best, most efficient course of action from there? I'd say the first thing I do is we probably have, or at least from my point of view, there's about 10 key tables that really like house all of the core data points that probably 90% of our reporting is built off. So I know those tables like the back of my hand over the last nine months or so of being here, being able to dive into those and use those every day. I kind of know what's there or know where to go within that small group of tables to get that. But every once in a while, there's a request that comes up. I've never heard of the metric. I've never even thought of it or seen it or, or what have you. And to be totally honest, almost 99% of the time at that point, I go to Arun and I say, Arun, I just got asked to see how many conversations our automation bot is is routing. I think that probably exists here, but have you ever seen that? Have you heard of that? Have you moved that data into Snowflake in, in any form? And I'm assuming then Arun, well, he usually knows the answer, but if he doesn't, he's kind of going back even further into the product teams and back upstream to either find that answer or to, to get that to me. And that's kind of where we're, we're kind of coming full circle into the two-lane two highway Venn diagram analogy of, of him going back and getting that data and bringing it, surfacing it within our data warehouse so that I can use it and build it out and report it. Arun, those, those core tables that Kyle's talking about, right? Like you have to educate me here because if I'm thinking about the core tables that you have built, how much of that is you anticipating the questions that are going to come in and how much of it is adapting to the newer questions that are coming in and figuring out whether or not the tables you've got help solve that, or you do have to spin something else up that's new. How do you manage that so that Kyle can go back and say, you know what, 90% of what I can get that is the most critical is coming from these core tables. Right. I would say it's a mix of both. As I architected these tables to look the way they are, I know that, hey, these are like for a conversation, we want to see if there's a meeting book, right? So even before anyone asks that, you want to know, like, for a given like conversation idea, are we are we able to capture a meeting or an email through that? Now, given that information, obviously these tables are a living and breathing, like living and breathing things. Essentially, I would I would not say that they're static in time, and these are always evolving. As we order, as we build more features in Drift, we keep adding more things to the table. So I would say when we build the Zoom integration to our Drift app to be able to directly call or chat from going to a conversation right directly from chat into a Zoom call, like they want to see like, oh, was there a Zoom call involved? So all these things keep getting added to this table. And like, we always see this these tables as, uh, as an ever-growing and a living document of uh, how we measure and define things in Drift. Now, this again, as I said, it's, it's going to be us anticipating and also as the product releases new features, we make sure that we have the capacity to add these into the new tables. I'm honestly in awe of the foresight and the true architectural nature of the work that Arun does with these tables. He is both 
reacting to the current needs of the business, and proactively planning ahead for what he thinks will be necessary in the future. As he put it, the tables are living, breathing things that are constantly evolving. In my opinion, Arun, Kyle, along with folks who work in similar roles to them, are these special unicorns that have both a specific technical expertise and they have to have clear business context in order to leverage their technical acumen. So I wanted to go deeper into a specific example of a problem that the business brought to them so that we can all see uh, a really practical example of how their partnership works in real life. We're going to start with something that is pretty technical and end with a deliverable that is digestible and valuable to somebody like me. The example that they told me about has to do with measuring customer health. I think one of the best examples that was a huge ask from the customer success department was to measure our customer health score. Now, this is a multidisciplinary approach. It involves it involves engineering. It involves a lot of business intelligence. It involves a lot of data science. So it is a three-way intersection of like how we look at a customer health score. Uh, we call it at-risk score within the company. And it definitely is the, I would say, highest level of collaboration within data end space and data science at Drift. Now, how we went about it was a three-step approach. We first looked at what do we need in terms of gathering information on how a customer is using Drift? Is it the number of conversations they had? Is it the number of playbooks they created? Is it the number of meetings they booked? In terms of the ratios and like all these metrics that we look at, what are these relevant inputs? It requires the first level of business understanding and a little bit of data understanding in the first pace. And as we iterate through, now I feed this data into the, uh, into the data science team and they look at it and they're saying, hey, we want more data. So we go back to the drawing board. What other things can we provide to the data science team? As this model keeps getting iterated and built on top of, we put this into, so this is where I get a little bit more into the technical depths of how we built it. All our tech stack is on AWS and like we use Airflow to do our bunch of our data orchestration and execution in the backend. So anything that gets caught, like written to Snowflake, our data warehouse, is essentially getting routed through Airflow. Now, once our data science team is like, okay, like, hey, we're good to go. We can push this model to testing and production phase. Now we deploy that into Airflow. So Airflow basically runs this model every day, backend. It gathers all the data. It does a bunch of heavy computations in the backend and spits out a score into Snowflake. So it pulls the data. So this is how the step would work. It gets the data from Snowflake, computes it, and it puts it back in Snowflake. Now, thing is, as a customer success manager, you're not going to look directly into Snowflake. It's a, data, it's a database. No one knows how to get to it. And to be clear, Arun, this score that's popping back out, this is a score that's going to measure whether someone is at risk to potentially leave Drift or that it measures how their the efficacy of the product usage. Like, What exactly is this number that's being spit back out indicating to me as a CSM? As a CSM, it, it shows, so the score essentially is graded from zero to 100. And the lower you are on that stream indicates, hey, the customer is not using Drift very well. And there's a high risk of them leaving us as a 
customer. And if one of our customers got, has a score of 98, 99, you know what? We don't need to worry about them until expansion or next renewal. They know how to use Drift and they're utilizing Drift to their to the maximum capacity. And again, like there are so many inputs that go into this model. It pretty much is very accurate to like deduce whether the customer is going to stay or not. Now, given the data is in Snowflake, we built this transact like we need to be able to get it to a transactional system like Salesforce. We use an internal tooling called Trade.io, pretty effective in like getting data right from Snowflake and push it back into Salesforce. So this is a nightly job that runs runs a bunch of computations in the back end, gets the score, and then pushes it right into Salesforce. So a customer success manager logs in at 7 a.m. to look at look through their all their meetings and look through the customers in the, in our Salesforce instance. They can say, oh, like I know how they're doing as of today. And like when I go into this meeting, I'm prepared on like what I can talk about and what I don't need to talk about. I think, first of all, you don't give yourself enough credit for the beginning of that first step in that process that you mentioned of just the fact that that data was even available to be given to the data science team in the first place, right? And like, we take that very much for granted, I think, at Drift, but just having that available based off of everything we talked about before, about the way you have constructed the tables and and pulled in the, the wide variety of sources, like just having that, I think, is an amazing foundational start. And then, like, I feel like, Kyle, we've reached the part of the highway where you need to take over. If you've got, like, a simpleton like me on the other end of this score, we've got to do a significant amount of enablement around what this score means and then how I can use it. So how do you then take a score like this in this particular example? Like, who do you need to talk to? Who do we need to get this in front of? Who do we need to train on how to use it? Like, what does that look like? As you mentioned, Sean, like Arun's downplaying the work it takes to write that in. So for me, like I would say it's it's pretty much easy money once it's in Snowflake for me to, to manipulate and use and to build into reporting. So once all that hard work is done by Arun and by Mickey, our data scientists, of building the score and refining the score with all these different data points, and then they're just putting a number back into Snowflake, which then I can basically, in that sense, once it's there, I can either, I can build raw format uh, reporting so that just like think like Excel or Google Sheets and like be able to dump that out from some SQL queries. But I can also do things that are more autonomous, like build it into a Looker dashboard, build it into already existing reports that our teams who would be the consumers of this new score, that they can have it readily available at all times. Arun also mentioned putting it into Salesforce, which is great because it's right there. It's That's a key system that our teams are using. But also something like Looker is going to allow us our users to see how that actually trends over time and to be able to identify any pockets of concern or any improvements that are encouraging. Looker's going to be able to do that at scale and, and really efficiently. Kyle, real quick on that. You mentioned like that concept of the trends, right? In, in Looker. Is that your main kind of guide about where you want to present that information? Because I would imagine for every single one of these examples that we could talk about, at the end of kind of that highway, right? We need to decide where we want someone to see this and where we want someone to take action. So is there a specific way that you think about whether or not, okay, this thing should live in Salesforce, this thing should look in look should live in Looker um, based on the different teams that you're servicing? Yeah, I think, and Sean, you know this better than anyone. First of all, with Salesforce is that we don't want to clutter Salesforce, which we maybe already 
are doing. But there's a million data points there. Uh, we don't just want to keep adding, adding, adding. So if we know it's something that's of value and needs to be readily available all the time for everyone at their fingertips, I think that's when it makes sense to add into Salesforce. So if, especially for, for our, our users that are speaking with customers, because they're going to be going to Salesforce on the fly while they're on calls and just want to look at it right there. Other types of projects that don't require it to go to Salesforce or Looker is if it's something that's ad hoc or it's kind of a one-time request where, and these come in all the time, I want to be able to see how our top 10 percentile of customers, how, how they're chatting or how their chats are converting into meetings and into leads. That might not be something that we want to run every single day, but might just be once a quarter or it's just a one-time request. That doesn't need to have the overhead of putting it into a business intelligence tool until we have that repeatability that we need that sends going, Looker is then going to start to unlock that, that speed and scale. But as I'm already alluding to, if it's something that needs to be looked at across the masses, so across a, a bunch of people, and it's going to be something that's looked at frequently, the quicker that you can put that into a tool like a Looker and be able to see those trends over time and be able to run it, be able to adjust timeframes, be able to adjust which customers you're looking at and making it self-serve in that setting is going to save me a ton of time. It's going to save the users a ton of time. And that's when BI really starts to kind of unlock our potential of providing data and insights back to the business teams. I really, I'm not just saying this, like I really genuinely believe that both of you guys are like this like weird, unique unicorn because you do have this like very technical skill set. And at the same time, you cannot do your job at least you cannot do your job in the most effective way possible without understanding the business context of everything that you're doing on the technical side as well. And this can be for either of you or, or both. Like, what have you guys done and what do you continue to do to kind of sharpen both? both sets of skills, right? Both on the technical side while making sure that you're not losing context, I think is the most important word on the business side. I can start with in the data engineering space, a, people want, a, as we said, the data engineering team is an engineering team that's uh, that's not building features, that the customer for the data engineering team is the employee, like the partners or the internal coworkers themselves. So it makes sense for the data engineering team to be able to remove friction for our own coworkers and partners in the company to get to their metrics and get to their data as fast as possible. One of the things that I look forward to is like, how can we reduce our, like, oh, there's a new data ingestion. So the widget team wants to like send this new data to me. How can I make it faster for them to be able to send that data into Snowflake and be able to start running or like start doing their metrics as fast as possible. So the time to time to get to that data is always what I me- measure. And I would say like with our fast pace at Drift, we definitely like have a turnaround time that's less than four to five hours of getting to that data as fast as possible. And secondly is we want to look at quality of the data. So I, I can only do that much quality check. I make sure that, okay, like as long as there's like, as the pipelines are working, and there's some data flow that's coming through, I can say that, okay, we're fine. If there's no data, I do get alerted saying, oh, like there seems like there's an issue. There's, a, there's I haven't seen any new data for the past two hours. Well, do you mind checking? So these are alerts that I put in place to ensure that we get to, a data engineering team gets to the issue before our downstream partners even figure that out. Kyle, anything to add? One thing that's been really helpful for me 
considering my my core customers, well, for the most part, it's it's still an operations team member. So it'd be like the marketing operations team or the customer success operations team. Uh, they essentially, for me, serve as a liaison into the business. And one thing that's been helpful over the last two quarters is I've worked on two bigger projects, both with marketing and with customer success, is really kind of attaching at the hips with those other operations folks. So whether that be marketing ops or whether that be CS ops, going really, really deep with them and having constant back and forth communication with them, not just like satisfying the requirements of the build, but really trying to like go deeper and ask those questions about like what would be valuable and what, what does the marketer actually care about so that we can get into that next level of requirement where we might start unlocking things that aren't just on the surface of, of what I'm providing, but it could actually drive even more value for them. And the inevitable too is for the teams where I'm building something large, or as we'd call like a big rock uh, type of a build, I'm also trying to go to the, the metrics meetings that those teams are having so I can hear directly from the leadership of what they're asking for, or what they would be asking my operations team members for, so that we don't have to play this constant game of telephone and I can kind of hear it right then and there and, and try to get that context as well. So really trying to like submerse myself, I guess, within the teams where I'm spending a lot of time building a lot of things for. It's an investment both for myself, but it's also an investment for those other operations team members I'm talking about as well to to kind of babysit me along the way and, and get me up to speed what the teams that they support really care about, which then I can start to see around the corner a little bit and hopefully start to start to fend for myself after a few weeks of of hearing the the different conversations that are happening within the business. Yeah, I mean that's what I was going to say too. I th- I feel like one that curiosity you're showing is so so important, but also at a certain point you're going to be able to identify and come up with ideas that CS ops or marketing ops or sales ops person might not have thought of, right? Just because you have better context and and more depth of knowledge there on technically what's possible. I actually have to add that Kyle does act as a great buffer for the data engineering team because. Sometimes a sales team or a CS team, they are trying to materialize what they want to even measure. And Kyle acts as his buffer where they can, he can actually formulate what they're trying to look at and come to me and say like, oh, this is kind of what they want to do. And it's easier for me to parse that out rather than like actually going all the way up to the customer or the partner and be like, and parse it out. So it definitely, as I said, two-way highway where... Kyle and I integrate well. I'm able to easily parse out requirements coming through Kyle, facing each and every business user and trying to figure out what the requirement actually is. Before we go, at the end of each episode, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Ooh. Uh, Shoe Dog. Good pick. Good pick. Arun, you have one? I have read Shoe Dog, but it's been more than six months. So I would have to say Homegoing by Yad Jassy. It's a book about Ghanaian and American history along the way and like slavery through the years. Since I am from Ghana, it was like a pretty cool aspect to like see both histories play out in time. That's really cool. Kyle, favorite part about working in ops? I would say it's the exposure to all the different business units. So us being a centralized operations team, like I have exposure to, to all these teams that Arun and I have talked about, CS, marketing, sales, product, we're not siloed. And so I can constantly see like how 
how a business is, is truly run from the core. And I think that's, that's really, really, really interesting for me. Arun, least favorite part about working in ops? Uh, <laughs> least favorite part would be uh, the amount of knowledge that you need to, like, just, it's, <laughs> it's basically like a fire hose sometimes. Like, I could be in CS world, and then I need to, like, jump into, like, marketing ops and, like, their world. And it's like, oh, my God, like, I need to start from scratch. So it is a lot of things to, like, just take in uh, at one point. Kyle, someone who impacted you getting the job you have today? There's a lot. I would say a good friend of mine that I worked with at my last company, Pat Brown, he both helped mentor me through the process of, of what I wanted and, and what I wanted to find and the type of job that'd be a good fit for me and groomed me that way and, and helped me kind of think outside of my own head and to really look at companies like Drift, which are on the up and up. So he was a huge help for me in, in approaching this, this job here at Drift. That's awesome. And I think I'm going to ask both of you to answer this last one, Arun. We'll have you go first. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. I actually have a lot of people like who want to get into data engineering space. I would say curiosity to learn the code. I think there's so many like online courses now that you can like get up to speed into writing SQL, writing some Python code. So it's always about like just there's so much like ways to like self-learn outside in terms of Coursera, all these machine learning courses. Just be able to register and like give yourself time commitment to like finish this at a, a course at a certain point in time. It definitely gotten easier to do that within the COVID space. It's unfortunate to be in the space. You're not going anywhere. You're kind of like at work and and then you're at home after that or like doing something else at home. So you can easily dedicate that level of time to like learning something new and learning to code is definitely probably the first step to getting uh, into data engineering. Yeah, I'd say something similar from a business intelligence analytics standpoint. I didn't go to computer science school. I, didn't, I, w- I wasn't a math major. I was a, basically just a business major. And so got started as a business analyst and I just sort of followed the trend and stayed curious on sort of what was happening in the market and what companies and, and people that I looked up to what they were doing and, and types of things that I thought were interesting, which I always kind of steered towards data and and just kind of kept going deeper and deeper. I was a big data user. Then I wanted to get my hands even more around it. So I started to build things that started out as Excel into now being into business intelligence is sort of my entire end to end. Most of that has been self-taught and just out of curiosity of wanting jobs like this and just kind of working back from that and knowing what did I need to learn and what did I need to do so that I could get into a role like this someday. And just like Arun said, all those resources are available to you. Everything is open source now and you can watch YouTube videos for days on how to how to write code. And, and to kind of double down on what Arun said, learning to code in any sort of language, I think is huge, whether it's just like going to Excel and writing VBA or if it's like just downloading some super easy SQL query guide that can help you just learn the structure and just at least start talking that language because it's it's not rocket science, but it, it is something that you just have to have to get comfortable with and, and learn the structure and the formatting. And then it sort of just takes off like wildfire. So, but it all starts at being curious and taking that first step and doing some self-teaching.
huge thank you to Arun and Kyle for coming on this week's episode of Operations. I recognize how lucky I am to work with both of them and hopefully all of you have folks on your teams like them or this was a blueprint for you to be able to start a team like the one that Arun and Kyle work on here at Drift. If you like what you heard from those two today, please make sure you're subscribed to the Operations Podcast so you get a new episode in your feed every other Friday. And if you're really enjoying the show, please leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. By the way, if you haven't heard, the originator of the six-star review, our CEO, David Cancel, has restarted the original podcast from Drift, Seeking Wisdom. If you are a fan of this show or any of the Drift podcasts, I promise you, you will also be a fan of Seeking Wisdom. Check that out on your feed as well. That's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. 